You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated 3 meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. We've had a couple other people from Haggerty on here before. Former FEMA administrator Brock Long was on here. We had Jessica Nalepa on the show before. Jessica reached out to me and said, hey, you got to have Kyle on the show. Kyle is the director of preparedness programs there at Haggerty. Obviously, we're a fan. We've worked with them in the past. We've talked about that on the show. And we're happy to have a representative back on because Haggerty has this great capability of touching a lot of different areas, especially different projects. And so uh, I believe Kyle's been with them since like 2013, maybe. Uh, he can probably correct me about it in a second. But he's been there for a while. He's been working on different projects with them. And so we can talk really uh, in-depthly about preparedness and its role in emergency management. Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, John. Happy to be here. And uh, 2009. So 2009. Really okay, wow. With, an additional four years. I've been with working on Haggerty. And you have additional feather in your cap, something I really like, is you're from Missouri. Am, am I correct there? That's right. Yeah, I currently right. reside in Kansas City. Okay, Kansas City, Missouri. Now, my my wife grew up uh, here in St. Louis, and uh, she was always adamant that Kansas City, Missouri, is very different than Kansas City, Kansas. Um, so, right. way to be Important on the distinction. Way, yeah, way to yeah. be on the good side of Kansas City, I guess. <laughs> um, so, if you're growing up in the Midwest, Midwest is dealing obviously with uh, you know earthquake or not earthquakes, um, tornadoes and floods mainly. Um, with the possibility of the earthquake here in St. Louis uh, at some point happening. Sure. If you're growing up with that, possibly that, that preparedness mindset, I'm sure you did a lot of drills in your school with, um, with uh, covering your head. Did you ever do that as a kid with the tornado drills? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I was telling a, a, a youth group about that in California. They didn't understand what I was talking about. I was like, man, that was like every three months. And as a kid growing up in Ohio, you know, Got to cover your head, wait for the tornado, pass over these, these drills. 
Um, so you have a preparedness kind of background, just growing up with that sense of preparedness. Sure. You, uh, you went to school to study, I think, counterterrorism, correct? Uh, well, I went to uh, St. Louis University, actually, and uh, biosecurity was, was my okay. focus at that point. And so uh, that was really my first introduction to the merger of, of some of the complex decision process that led me to, uh, to Haggerty in the preparedness division. Yeah. And then once you got in, you stayed there. So that's right. Uh, yeah. You worked your way up. So, okay. In terms of like the major projects that you've worked on, some of the things, some of these highlights that you've done, what really stands out to you of like, oh, that is preparedness done right? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, in my time with Haggerty and, and seeing the company grow over the past decade plus, uh, we've had a tremendous number of opportunities to help clients from coast to coast. And so, you know, in that time, I've been able to work with jurisdictions, large and small, all levels of government, non-for-profit, for-profit entities. And, you know, from each experience, we learn something, you know, as much as we're there to support our clients at the same time, uh, we're picking up bits and pieces along, even if it's just something as simple as what's important to our clients or where are some of the pain points they're struggling. And so, you know, I, I like to think about it as just sort of a, an iterative process that you know, not only do we get sort of the temperature of preparedness across the nation, uh, we also get to really extract what seems to be working well and, and where uh, individual clients have been very successful. And, um, and so, you know, as I look back over that time, there are certain efforts that stand out that were highly complex and, and uh, really rewarding results. Uh, for instance, we led one of the, the largest planning efforts in the nation's history. Um, eight states and four FEMA regions involved in planning for a, an event that's sort of near and dear to Missourians, and that is uh, the New Madrid Seismic Zone uh, earthquake scenario. Uh, we've also done a, a number of more nuanced efforts around active threat. Uh, and more recently, I think we're, we're really stepping back from the incident response and looking at overall capability building, which is uh, an exciting uh, uh, development for the field, I would say, as we're maturing and sort of looking at risk at a structural level as opposed to uh, the individual incident. Okay, so in terms like the... Uh, the, the projects that stand out to you, New Madrid, obviously, you, you mentioned that. Um, in terms of what you did for New Madrid, what was your specific role in, in walking through that seismic zone? Because as I understand, there are two very different opinions in uh, how to deal with uh, earthquake zones, especially in um, the St. Louis area. And so like, what, what were you working on and, and what were some of the, the gaps that you identified in that preparedness process? Well, I, I think it's important before we dive in to just note that, you know, this has been a, a long identified risk to the region. Uh, there's been a lot of planning that occurred before we were involved, and it continues to this day, both at the federal level and at the local and state level. Uh, my specific role, I started out at FEMA headquarters working on some of the strategic concepts as to how the nation would uh, respond and support the regions, especially around the issue of resource adjudication. In other words, just an acknowledgement that the need would exceed the availability of, of resources. And so there had to be a decision process built around how to allocate those resources uh, based on a series of, of prioritization uh, decisions process. Uh, then went to the regional level and worked specifically with the state of Missouri. So that was a real opportunity to, to sort of see uh, that strategy translate to implementation and, and uh, sort of feel like the, the nuances of uh, uh, how the individual needs of Missourians and, and other communities would be met 
uh, if if that catastrophic worst case scenario were to unfold. Okay, so you're you're going to be start talking about FEMA language versus uh, what I've been uh, kind of addressing on the show here a little bit is FEMA's five areas of preparedness. One of them covers response, and really what you're talking about is a response scenario and preparing for that response. But really, once you get into response, you're outside of preparedness, right? And so, how are you? What are your thoughts then? If you're looking at the five FEMA areas of preparedness, which again, they say response is one of those areas, one, at one point you have to start acting. And what you're talking about is the acting part. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you addressing that with the need of preparing Missourians for the New Madrid incident? Like what are the, the, the steps to mitigate that issue? Well, I think that when you get sort of uh, the overall vision identified as to what the intent would be, um, then you can start working through how to go about uh, implementing those those identified priorities. So, um, you know, when we really start translating it to sort of tactics, uh, in other words, how does this mission get carried out at the field level? uh, What we're talking about is capability building. So the preparedness mission is really about defining that uh, mission as specific as possible and testing and validating that that capability exists. And ultimately when you test something, uh, typically a a component of it will fail or break or could be improved otherwise. And so what you're trying to do is sort of just identify how to make that capability more robust over time. And that's really where preparedness has a lot of value to communities is because especially for these high consequence, low probability events where, you know, we may never see in an entire career, the actual event unfold, we don't get much practice, we have to be ready to go when it does occur. And that's the value of preparedness is identifying what those capabilities are and incrementally working at building, uh, building that capability over time, you know, in just a contrast to to sort of the FEMA process versus that approach at the local level, and this is agnostic of Missouri or any other jurisdiction, but I think you know, the the fundamental task that we have is to scale it right for the stakeholders and resources that are available in that community. And many times, you know, we're working with organizations who are balancing emergency management duties with many other competing priorities. In some cases, the emergency manager is a volunteer. Um, And so, you know, you really have to take these uh, systems, processes, frameworks that have been developed and, and make them work for uh, sort of the practical matter at the field level. Yeah, you hit on uh, a lot of points that I, I ring well with me. Um, in fact, Brock Long talks about, I talked about on the show, um, you know, you fail if you fail logistics. Similarly, um, Tim Britt uh, from the National Strike Team, National Incident Management Team, Red now, technically, he was on the show and he said something similar. If you fail, you fail at tactics, which is directly to your point. Um, there are nuances for every community, but really, to, again, to your credit, you know, when you go into different jurisdictions, there are things that resonate in every single community. You have systems in place. You have policy that they'd be aware of. You have to understand the capabilities and gaps. And uh, that, that definitely rings true with what I've seen in my experience going around the country as well, responding to disasters is, okay, we have to deal with the cultural impacts. We have to deal with uh, localized um, views of what emergency management is. But the other thing is we have to deal with, and man, great call out, um, was that the local guy is often a volunteer. Uh, and or it's a, it's a multiple um, 
hat wearing scenario where it's, Hey, you're the sheriff all the time, but in a large scale disaster, all of a sudden now you're the, you're the emergency manager and you walk in there and he's like, uh, Hey, I'm the County emergency manager. Great. Uh, what's your hazard mitigation plan? What's a hazard mitigation plan? And that's no discredit to the sheriff. He just has a, a million other things on his plate. And so now I, I, I think that's, that's great. You're preparing to understand the, the, the capabilities you're understanding um, those nuances and, and how they interplay against the things that happen in every single disaster, every single uh, event that we're trying to, to reduce. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to do something, right? Emergency managers, it's always better to do something than nothing in a disaster, uh, especially in preparedness. And we just left National Preparedness Month, right? Uh, that, just, that just closed out. And so this is like a great follow-up to that. What is your then, if we're, we're thinking of this perspective here, now, just for like the user, user's sake and even your sake, the way that Disaster Tough podcast looked at preparedness month was how do you prepare the emergency manager to deal with the threats of the future? In terms of national preparedness month during a pandemic, second year of the pandemic, people are exhausted, all that kind of stuff happening. What would be your kind of immediate after action of what you thought this year's preparedness month uh, was like, and then as a follow-up to that, that AAR, um, what are the next steps emergency managers need to take, especially if they're wearing multiple hats? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question and point. And just to build off of that, I really think COVID and in, in the events of the past year and a half or so now have exacerbated the, the trend or um, the area we've identified here. And that is that already limited resources and expertise in the field, especially at the local and state level, they've been exhausted, there is attrition, there's fatigue, um, and you can completely appreciate why that is. Uh, many people have been fully engaged in response for that entire period, uh, you know, 12 plus hour days, uh, many cases every day of the week. And so, you know, that does have a, a long-term tail to it. Even if COVID were to resolve tomorrow, I think within the industry of, of emergency managers or within the practice of emergency managers, um, you know, we're going to feel the effects for some time to come. I think it's also uh, changed the underlying assumptions of the populations that we serve. And that is that COVID-19 has had a significant impact on communities from coast to coast. Um, there were trends that were already in place, such as uh, an aging population. You know, the recent census showed that the population that's 55 and older grew 20 times of that 55 and younger. And so, you know, our populations are aging. That's sort of a universal trend. But COVID has really highlighted things like uh, it's made substance abuse problems worse. Uh, housing and homelessness has been exacerbated by some of the underlying conditions that have, that have been complicated by COVID-19, non-pharmaceutical interventions, et cetera. Uh, now, more recently, we're seeing uh, exacerbated supply chain issues, uh, cost of living increases. All of these things are changing the underlying population that we're supporting and evolving sort of the profession, the way it looks. Um, there are sort of um, uh, things that are occurring that we can take uh, pride in, or I think look at sort of shining light amidst the uh, chaos, if you will. Uh, for instance, the, you know, the National Preparedness Survey came out this year, showed a 6% increase in preparedness. Uh, and so I think some of that is individuals recognizing that 
you know, conditions are a, a little unstable, that some of the assumptions I had for my friends, family, colleagues, um, they may not always be true. And so I need to take a second look at getting prepared and ready for uncertainty. So I do think that there are, from a preparedness perspective, some sort of glimmers of, of hope in, in all of this is that it has sort of elevated that idea of personal preparedness to the forefront of discussion. But we've got a long way to go. And, um, you know, I think the most recent statistic I saw is only four in 10 Americans have $1,000 in savings. And so this idea of uh, socioeconomic resilience is absolutely vital as we look at, again, the impact of COVID and what has changed from, let's say, two years ago to now. In terms of some of those immediate learnings, you know, they're extensive. Uh, I think that one of the biggest trends we see right now, currently with our clients nationwide is, is um, a goal to institutionalize what has just occurred. In other words, you know, we've spent years, in some cases, you know, 15 plus years building capability and COVID-19 and all of the co-response that occurred with it. So we're talking about floods, fires, hurricanes, uh, basically nationwide. And it's been a very intense season since 2017, really. Um, so all of that package together has allowed us to test the system from one side to the other. And there's a lot we can talk about in terms of what's sort of bubbling to the top. But I think, you know, the macro trend right now is even though we're still in response, um, there is this desire to try to, to, to take a snapshot of, hey, what has happened? What have we learned? What can we uh, build upon and institutionalize as to uh, continue to build capability in the future? Yeah, I mean, again, you're you're talking about mic drop moments here of um, of good, bad, and ugly, right? The the good is that the outcome of COVID nineteen in terms of the emergency management perspective and understanding how culture plays in the the, the mindset. I'm talking about the U.S. mindset really of preparedness. You have to have something unfortunately happen for people to kind of wake up. Um, that's been true of so many incidents on in the last you know, hundred years. I think that was really well documented in, um, um, American disaster, that book. Um, but, but what we're talking about is building again, this whole idea of disaster, tough, disaster, tough communities that say, Hey, I just went through a year and a half, two years of COVID. I don't want to have to deal with that. Or I'm in COVID and there was a five-day power outage and we have a supply chain issue and oh my gosh i don't have like really basic things i i also think that uh you know brock long you're definitely a, a student of brock long or a, co a cohort with brock long because he talks a lot about financial resiliency and the ability to bounce back economically that is like the number one thing we we talk about with people is get on that list for to t call your insurance if you're going to be impacted by a disaster right and so um, when you're dealing with a first come first serve and you're dealing with a, an environment that is highly stressful, that's it's moving. It's hard for people to say, Hey, my house, I'm, I'm watching my house burn down. I need to call the, I need to call my insurance right now. They, they want to watch the house burn for a few days and process, but we got to get people to, to start thinking, um, Hey, what's your next step? How do you, how do you use emergency preparedness to make your life easier and not doomsday preppy? And I'm, I'm very against doomsday preppy, but I'm all about making your life easier and preparedness and done right uh, allows that to happen. So great call out uh, on that perspective. 
in terms of like capabilities, a lot of lessons learned. Um, you said we had a long way to go. I, I totally agree. Um, how do you raise the level of preparedness in this country in general? Uh, one way that we've been trying to attack it is say, hey, let's let's look inward here for a second and say, are we doing the best we can do to uh, position ourselves to to be that person in the room that says, hey, you should pay attention to what I'm saying versus just like trying to blast the community all the time with like, hey, buy your go bag, get better savings, get it, get the right insurance. And so like our messaging might need to, to be updated there a little bit. Um, but that's kind of my perspective in terms of your 14 years of working in preparedness um, or let's see, 12 years working in preparedness. I had to do the quick math there for a second. Um, like what, what is that looking like for you in terms of, hey, how can we be better as a community in preparing other people? Sure. And, and just to clarify, John, you know, before I started with consulting, I, I did have a series of roles at the local level. Um, oh, so it's provided right, me a, a lot of perspective <laughs> that I've taken to this current position, you know, to really uh, understand the nuances of, of implementation and the limitations of resources. So I'm a huge advocate of that because of that experience early in my career. You know, I think that um, what I would say is sort of a fundamental understanding coming out of COVID is that our focus as emergency managers needs to be more on resilient structures uh, instead of functions. And what I mean by that is that COVID is a nonlinear disaster and it has really highlighted, I think the nuance of the coming era, which is that um, we're dealing with a, a period of time where there are gonna be compounding crises. Um, there is the physical environment, which you know, we can talk about trends and climate adaptation and sort of all that funnels into that physical environment. There is the technology and human environment, which is becoming more complex, interconnected. And I think a, a number of real world events that have occurred in the past 12 months have shown how vulnerable it is. Um, and you sort of take those two components together uh, and overlay them with the demographics, which we touched on earlier. And, and what we see is that we really need to begin to think of emergency management and institutionalize emergency management across functions. So, you know, we're not looking at this anymore as sort of isolated response to a single incident, but rather, you know, the entire apparatus of a corporation or of government is incorporating these concepts and looking at resilience, redundancy, et cetera. Um, I think this idea of sort of focusing on preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation, um, it's much more cyclical and you may stack many incidents on top of each other that have competing timelines and uh, different demands for resources. And so I really think that what, what's happening and, and what's likely to happen as we continue to move forward is we just move more and more to this sort of holistic mindset where we're looking across um, the entire function of government and identifying ways in which they're contributing to resilience, community resilience. Uh, we're looking beyond sort of traditional emergency management functions, sort of the lights and sirens, incident management type of emergency management and thinking about emergency management more as a resource adjudicator, um, as, as an entity that is uniquely suited to address both strategic and tactical implementation and really, has that ability to bring a surge of resources when it's required to meet uh, some sort of degradation of service. 
And um, that can be caused by any number of things, whether it be supply chain constraints, a physical disaster, a hack or cyber incident. Um, I just think we need to create a more dynamic and, and sort of structural approach uh, to, to preparedness and to emergency management. Yeah, that's a great call out. And I, I like the idea of, of looking at structure versus systems and um, understanding that, um, you know, they are different. And, uh, you know, my perspective, most disasters are not definitely linear. Um, social vulnerability. Um, I said this at the, the NATO conference. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned on a previous episode, I, I had a, a huge opportunity to be able to talk to um, our military counterparts and talk about that, um, that, that, that portion where you don't really create new social vulnerability issues. You highlight and exacerbate the, the issues that are already there. And, um, you know, to, to the point of preparedness of addressing those issues. Um, there's a, a really great book for people to read called Social Vulnerability. And uh, they looked at disasters happening all over the globe and they did a ton of research, a ton of data to look at it. It's kind of dense, but it's like a really good resource of understanding how any issue that's highlighted in a disaster was already there. It was simmering uh, either under the surface or on the surface and it just exploded in the disaster. Um, and so like if, if your finances, for example, we talked about finances, if they're not in order, you're not really aware of them before the disaster and you don't have redundancy built in, then in a disaster, it's going to highlight that. If you have a lot of redundancy built in and you have multiple streams of income or you have a uh, great savings, you have good insurance, you understand those processes, then that will also be highlighted. You're, you'll, you'll recover faster. So uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's a really great call out. Um, and, and Don, just yeah. to build off of that, I think the same is true sort of looking at emergency management um, at a at a macro level, and that is a concept such as mutual aid. Well, it's built upon this assumption that there is liquidity in the system, that there are more resources at a national level or right. interjurisdictional level than are required for the disaster response. But I think this current environment has shown all, both the the constraints of public budgets reducing the number of available resources, as well as competing demands across a number of jurisdictions simultaneously, it's created a gap, a, a breakdown of that assumption. And so as we look forward to what preparedness and emergency management becomes, it's gonna become increasingly reliant on those resilient structures. You know, organizations, communities, first of all, taking responsibility for what's required to meet the needs of, of the population of their services, um, but also looking to non-traditional resources to meet those needs. And, and I think that, you know, concepts such as public-private partnerships or uh, utilizing uh, companies such, such as Haggerty or other uh, public service firms to meet surge requirements are becoming the standard as opposed to the exception. Yeah, it's funny that, um, you know, the pushback that at, coming from a government perspective, you said you worked at a local level, which is awesome. Coming from a government perspective and now in the private sector myself, it's really funny the concept of of consulting and our, which is kind of like a dirty word in our company, because uh, we're emergency managers first, but um, uh, the, the, inherently consulting or, or providing support or providing staffing or whatever, all those concepts are really pushed back against people with no experience because they'll say like, well, if, if, if I can, if I need this budget, then I will just hire somebody. Well, hire somebody doesn't equal a team. I'm like, yeah, sure. You could do your EOP. It'll take you three years. You could do it with us for six months. And Haggerty's the exact same way. 
you guys are really big with staffing. You're able to, to bolster um, those requirements. And now there's a ton of funding to be able to do that. There should, there, anybody with experience knows that you bring in outside resources to be able to work on that. Um, you know, just, I'm gonna, this is not a pitch for Haggerty because I'm not with Haggerty, but noting Haggerty is very strong with New York and California. And that's part, part of the reason why they're, they're so capable is because they're able to bring in additional staffing resources and, and to be able to help out. And it's the same thing, whether, you know, we're helping out with uh, a training exercise or we're dealing with uh, that on our side of the house as well. It's like, I think as the emergency managers around the country are listening to this podcast, be aware that one, the money's already there and you could probably speak to that. And two, have a value added by a team coming in and not just an individual that you hope uh, can, can get it done and before something hits, right? So in, in terms of uh, what I just asked there, can you provide some resources, um, some either grants or funding that's available for emergency managers to access that kind of, that, that kind of help? Well, we have experts that, you know, whether it be ARPA, ERAP, uh, there are a number of different programs out from FEMA right now, more traditional funding streams such as PA and IA, you know, all of those can be leveraged in different ways to bring in external support, you know, whether it be a consultancy or other provider, you know, what I would just really focus on is what we discussed earlier is if there is hesitation to go down that road, um, just really looking at our earlier conversation about questioning some of the assumptions that we've had historically and looking at the limitations of available resources um, using those historical assumptions. And as we go forward, I don't see that limitation being one off. Yes, it, it was particularly highlighted by the limitations and simultaneous impact of COVID across the entire nation. But I think as we look towards a more vulnerable future with increasing disasters, increasing disaster costs, the need for the private sector to be engaged in your jurisdictional level activity is going to continue to be paramount. And it's not unique to technical assistance or a consultancy like Hagri. When you look at COVID-19, uh, medical supplies, vaccine, surge support to operate vaccine sites, all of these were private entities in large part, you know, supplemented uh, or supported government services. And so um, there really is a significant need for and footprint of, of private sector resources in that broader response. And I think, again, as, as your traditional assumptions on mutual aid are called into question, this is sort of a, an alternative strategy to, to make sure that those services are provided to the community and the needs are met. You throw on top of that, that 85% of the critical infrastructure in the nation is, is owned by the private sector, owned and or operated by the private sector. Um, there's really no alternative to having you know, a very robust engagement process and thinking through how those partners are going to be engaged in, in the overall response. And, and that's best done pre-incident. That's really where you're able to avoid and navigate you know, some of the challenges that potentially have uh, dissuaded the use of contractors in the past. Yeah, it's just the reality of, uh, of the process moving forward, especially as uh, governments have different allocations for how they look at uh, an employee versus a contractor and uh, the complexities of disasters moving forward, as you just highlighted yourself, it's going to get more complex. Um, you know, when the, when dominoes start falling, there, there's a long-term process that you have to look at that and emergency managers are best suited to understand, um, you know, those, those cascading impacts. And, and to your point about critical infrastructure, for sure, uh, critical infrastructure 
we we are a capitalist society. I love the fact that we're a capitalist society for sure. However, we also have to be under, uh, understanding that like there's counterparts and that they have their own they have their own priorities, capabilities, gaps, uh, you know, and successes, and what they're willing to do as a as a government guy and as a lot of government people listen to the show. You can't not you can't always use like the Stafford actor. You can't always use like oh my, I'm the big dog coming in in here. You have to understand how to work with them and working on relationships, working on uh, building that pre-disaster again, taking that preparedness perspective of interoperability. Who are the stakeholders? Letting them come to the table so much better to say, hey Kyle, how are you doing? I could really use your help versus, hey who are you? Right? Like, what do you provide? I don't have time. I'm in a response. So I, I think you're you're highlighting really good things here. In, in terms of maybe last touch points here, um, thinking of all these areas of preparedness, thinking of interoperability, thinking of using public-private par partnerships, and, and again, in that pre preparedness perspective, what would you what would you be telling to the twenty thousand or so emergency managers who are listening to the podcast right now? Well, I think that a question we're getting a lot right now is sort of how do I get back to programs? Uh, everyone is still very much engaged in response and has been for, for months in many cases, but there is this uh, sense or feeling that we can start to think about what's next in a, in a post-COVID or when COVID isn't uh, all-consuming in terms of resources. And so we are starting to see that, I would say, nationwide. And, and so in that, I think there's a real opportunity for um, sort of rediscovery or incorporating what we've learned over the past year and a half, making sure that we don't lose those lessons learned and actively incorporating them into where we go. In addition, I think that there are some very unique funding streams that present opportunities sort of point in time where we are today um, to shape the built environment in particular. Uh, these are revolving around, you know, investments in green infrastructure, climate adaptation, um, future infrastructure spending, we know we're making uh, progress in these areas, but I think that uh, what we want to continue to encourage is that emergency managers define a role in that conversation. We think they're very uniquely suited to, to positively contribute uh, to how those funding streams are deployed into communities to have maximum effect and to reduce risk in the future. And so we've been working actively, um, for instance, in the mitigation arena around BRIC funding, HMGP, to try to, to make sure that uh, uh, we're translating sort of that historical preparedness work, understanding risk, capturing it in a thyra, state preparedness report, tracking progression over time, that all of that information is fed into the decision process as this funding becomes available. So we believe that as we look forward, let's say into 22, that's an area where we really need to kind of be looking for opportunities to engage in those conversations at the state and local level. Um, the other thing that I, I do want to mention is that sort of this uh, bubbling trend is this idea of uh, the use of technology in government services period. And I think that what we've seen over the past 18 months or so is just sort of that trend accelerated exponentially. And, and that's also opened up a, a tremendous number of vulnerabilities as it relates to cybersecurity and disruption. Um, you know, we've seen a number of ransomware specific attacks. And so one of the interesting trends as we sort of look into 2022 and beyond is, is really carving out and better defining the role of emergency management in the context of cyber disruption. 
Uh, as it is right now, a study in 2019 showed that two thirds of all ransomware attacks occurred within the state and local governments. Um, this is a trend that's continuing. It's increasing in, in, its, in its frequency and its impact. Uh, a number of states have been impacted recently. This has had direct kinetic effects on their ability to provide essential services. And we've seen you know, massive uh, uh, compromise of data, solar winds being a very recent example that occurred during COVID. And so we feel like this topic of cyber disruption planning, incorporating that into your continuity of operations efforts uh, is, is key. And it's easy to sort of link you know, this sort of emerging cyber disruption activity with the continuity of operations or business continuity activity that we've been validating or testing over the past 18 months, continue to do so in most environments and, and some of the supply chain disruptions that are ongoing and, and um, presenting challenges on a number of fronts. So you know, we think that that, that sort of uh, relationship is key as uh, governments start to, to, to think beyond COVID and, and about what comes next. One of my favorite moments was in Hurricane Harvey, got an email um, from, I think it was NATO. It was from somebody at headquarters, forwarded on from NATO. Russia contacted them, contacted us, said, hey, we have a bunch of satellite images uh, over uh, Houston. Do you want them? And it was just like them, their way of telling us that they, are, they, were, uh, they were aware. And... Um, you know, a uh, really funny uh, situation. But yeah, cyber is uh, definitely an issue. It's going to come up. It's going to come up, I have a feeling, later this month as well. And hint. Um, but I, my, my one caveat is in emergency management, we have very, very limited use of technologies and, the, and uh, the, the, what technology can provide using artificial intelligence to tell us, hey, all these shapes equal damage versus drive-bys, for example, and speeding up that process. So there's there's a lot of different areas where technology can help. And I, I think that that trend will continue, especially as those moving into emergency management have an expectation and a use of technology. So if you're in emergency management, you've been doing it for a while, and you're like, uh-oh, technology, now I have to like shut down the whole thing. And now we're... No, I don't think that's what you're saying. I think what you're saying is the use of technologies is exponential. And we also need to be aware of the pros and cons of technologies. I will say that, oh my gosh, there's so much that like technology can help you out with your job, but be smart in how you're using that. And I think there also needs to be a situational awareness increase for emergency managers of don't open every email, check out different things, understand that you are being attacked, understand that people attack critical infrastructure. And, and now you have to work with private industry who may or may not want to share that they have been attacked. Right. So you, there's a lot of vulnerabilities that opens up for sure. And I think that's a great way to um, to to talk about the next steps in emergency management, especially if, I mean, forward facing. Right. So a really good call out. Um, I'm going to leave it to you, Kyle, for any final thoughts before I close it out um, on like next steps. Anything else you'd like to tell the community? Well, no, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And uh, this has been, it's been a great uh, conversation and always happy to continue these dialogues offline. Anyone's feel free to reach out to me. You can do so uh, via LinkedIn or on Haggerty Consulting's website. All my contact information is there. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll actually put that in the show notes as well, just to uh, throw you a bone. Um, but I actually enjoyed the conversation. I think it was really great. I think we covered a lot of different areas of preparedness, talking about the community, talking about the community of emergency managers and, and the community of, of civilian populations, 
public-private partnerships, critical infrastructure. We covered a lot of different areas here. If you got something out of this episode, which you should have, because we did cover so many different uh, areas, we wanted to give it, we're going to do that that shameless five-star rating. You got to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. You can reach out to Kyle directly. We'll put his information in our show notes. You can also, if you have a general question about preparedness, the field, whatever, make sure you tag, you can tag Haggerty for sure, but you can, you can tag Kyle, tag our show. Ask the question on social media. Let the community of emergency managers answer those questions. You can also reach out to Doberman. A lot of people like to quietly reach out to Doberman through info at DobermanEMG.com. We appreciate that. We'll be happy to forward on to Kyle for sure. But ha- have the have the gravitas to ask the questions to the community because a lot of us are thinking about this. If you're thinking about it, if you have questions, make sure you keep tuning into this podcast because we're going to be talking about it in the future. And we'll see you next week.